0: You have your Bible with you. We're going to be preaching from the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. I'll get around to that in a little while. But I've indicated to you that I wanted to start a series of Old Testament characters. Folks that, you know, we've done this in the past. We've gone and uh, researched various individuals and brought them to your attention because we want you to learn the lesson from their lives that God has for you. And in so doing, one of the things that I've done many, most of the time when I've introduced a character is interviewed somebody so that you get a good background on something about them. And this morning, I have an interviewee as we go to the Bible and look at the story of someone named Abigail. And uh, the, sub, the subtitle of the, uh, of the sermon is called Beauty and the Beast. And you'll see that as we go along. So this morning, my interview is a lady named Jean. And I searched the congregation in my mind if I could find a Jean. And here she is. So this will give you some background into the ten, tenure of the times back in the day of the account in 1 Samuel 25. Can I get it out? Yeah, I think so. There you go. She has to have a microphone too. She's getting very professional at this. Well, good morning. We are in the town of Moan. Moan's business is agriculture. It's livestock. It's quiet, lush valleys travel up to rugged mountains and hills, in effect, to capture what life is like in Moan. One of its residents, Jean, has agreed to speak to us provided we're out here in open space. Gene. why do we have to be out here in this field in open space?
1: Well, you're an outsider, and outsiders are always suspect because no one is sure of your politics and whether you are a supporter of King Saul or of his rival, David. Things have gotten so bad that Saul has encouraged one of our richest and most powerful men to eavesdrop on everybody's private conversations. That man, Nabal, has formed a group to do just that. He calls it the NSA. NSA? Yes, the Nabal Security Agency. They listen to conversations and collect as much information as they can. And if they find people who disagree with the king, then The IRS gets involved. By
0: the IRS, do you mean the Israeli Revenue Service? Are you telling me that the NSA and the IRS are working together to spy on and interfere with the lives of ordinary citizens in this region? That's just too much of a conspiracy theory for me.
1: In Mayan, we have an old saying, be careful, Big Bubala is watching.
0: Him I heard of. Let's change the subject, tell me more about Nabal without all the political intrigue.
1: Well, he's rich, he's powerful, and he has what a lot of people consider to be some very rough edges. But I always say, how bad could he be? After all, popular women in Israel, I'm sorry, he's got one of the most popular, beautiful, intelligent women in Israel as his wife. I figure she's too, too smart to marry a schlub, even if he is rich. But what do I know? They're rich and famous, and according to you, I'm a wingnut conspiracy theorist. Yeah, that's probably true. Anyway, I have to go. Rumors are that David and his men are somewhere in those hills hiding out, and things are a little tense in town. So goodbye. By the way, smile. Big Bubala is watching, you too.
0: (laughs) Some quiet towns are not so quiet after all, are they? Thank you. Okay. We'll be doing that pretty much every week, having an interview like that. So the title of the Of The sermon is Beauty and the Beast. It's a story of Abigail. It's found in 1 Samuel 25. We'll get there in a couple of minutes. Let me introduce the three characters in this account. Nabal, he's the husband of Abigail. Abigail is a woman with beauty and brains. And David is the presumptive king of Israel. Here's a profile and background to our text this morning. Nabal, you know what his name means? It means fool. He was, by all accounts, a bear of a man. Verse 3 calls him churlish. You wonder what that means. It means he's harsh, he's rude, and he's brutal. His reputation was that of a man out of control, stubborn, ill-tempered. He had a serious drinking problem. His drunken binges triggered fits of rage in which he violently attacked and beat anybody near him, including his wife. He was extremely wealthy. 3,000 years ago, how did they measure wealth? By your possessions, your livestock primarily. He had over 3,000 sheep, over 1,000 goats, and he had hundreds of servants. By anybody's measure in those days, he was a billionaire. Add to the mix, the scripture says Nabal was a godless individual who openly rejected the God of Israel. Let's contrast Him against his wife. Abigail, her name means cause for joy. We can say amen to that, Abigail. Thank you. You're a cause for joy to us. She was a faithful follower of the God of Israel. The scripture tells us she was a woman of incredible beauty and intelligence, beautiful on the outside, beautiful on the inside. She had the tact of a wise wife and the spiritual values of a good woman, relationship with God gave her a joy that enabled her to cope with the adverse trying circumstance of a miserable life with this man. You may be asking why in the world did beauty marry this beast? I'll answer that a little later on. The third character in our text is David. David was the handsome young man destined to be king of Israel. But the present King Saul had become increasingly jealous of David's military victories as well as his growing fame among people. If you don't think this is contemporary, that people in power are jealous of one another, just watch the news. They will do anything they can to tear somebody else, especially during the campaign season. They make somebody who you initially thought was a pretty decent person, and they'll take them and turn them into a a beast. They'll turn them into somebody you wouldn't want to have lunch with or breakfast with. They'll turn them into somebody you can't trust. When uh, when the last George Bush was elected president, when he came in, especially after September 11th, the trust factor he had, according to the polls, he had the highest trust factor of any president of the United States. He had over 90% of the population trusted him. And then the opposing party decided that was not good for the election of someone in their party, and they began to tear down the trust of that president to the people. And by the time they got through, when it was time to be reelected, his, popul- his popularity was down around 30%. It can be done. Jealousy creates that kind of a system. Because of David's uh, problems with Saul, David became, became an outlaw. Because of Saul's hatred, he and his loyal band of 600 soldiers were living in strongholds. They were living in caves, basically, in the hills, just outside of Nabal's vast land holdings. So here they were on the outskirts of where Nabal had his lands. And in the past, David's men would help Nabal as uh, shepherds fought off marauding bands to protect their flocks, well, David's men would come down out of their caves and they'd help fight off these marauding groups. So when the time came that David's men were in a place where their supplies were were very low, they had very little food, they decided maybe what we could do is go to see Nabal and get him to do for us what we did for him, help us out. They said uh, David sent a couple of his men down to, uh, to speak to Nabal and get him to release some food, maybe give him a couple of steers, maybe give him some sheep. Well, when they went down, here was Nabal's response. You may re- remember a similar response back in the 1970s when, uh, when uh, one of the presidents was asked to help New York City out of its financial difficulties. It was President General Ford, and he was asked to, who, to bail out New York City and his response to New York City was, according to the New York uh, Post and the Daily News, "Drop dead. That's what he said to New York City. And in effect, that's what Nabal said to, uh, to David's men. I wouldn't give you a crumb. You're nothing but a bunch of criminals. What? David got the message, and like a true warrior, he vows to take what he needs and kill Nahum in the process. You're not going to turn it over to me voluntarily after all I've done for you. Remember, some people say, no good deed goes unpunished. That's how David felt at the moment. So we pick up this account from that point, and we learn how Nabal, David, and Abigail's lives intersect. So uh, turn in your Bibles. It's up here on PowerPoint. We're going to read 1 Samuel 25, verses 14 to 19, 23 to 26, 32, 33, and 35, keep your Bibles open. Please stand with me as we pay respect to the Scripture, and I will read these verses. We're trying to get the big picture, the big account. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute your master. And he railed against them. He told them to drop dead. But when the men were very good unto us and were not hurt, neither missed we anything as long as we were conversant with them when we were in the fields. They were a wall unto us both by night and day, and while all we were with keeping them their sheep, now therefore know and consider what thou wilt do. For evil is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such as a son of Belial that a man cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two bottles of wine and five sheep already dressed and five measures of parched corn and hundreds of clusters and raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on asses. And she told her servants, go on to go on before me. Behold, I come after you, but she told not her husband Nabal. So what does that say? It says that she was going to undo what her husband had done. Instead of turning David's people away. She was going to bring him food. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hastened and lighted off the ass and fell before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground and fell at his feet and say, Unto me, O Lord, upon me let this iniquity be. And let thine handmaid and I pray thee speak in thine audience and hear the words of thine house of that handmaid. Let not my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man Belial, Even Nabal, that's what she, that's the name they had given him, which is like a devil, for as his name, so is he. Nabal is his name, folly is with him. But I, thy handmaid, saw not these young men, my Lord, whom thou didst send. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, seeing the Lord uh, hath withholden thee from coming to shed blood, and avenging thyself with thine own hand, let now thine enemies, and they that seek thee, uh, be, be as Nabal. Verse 32. And David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me. And blessed be thy advice and blessed be thou, which has kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with my own hand. Thank you. May be seated. So what are some of the things we can learn from Abigail? Lesson number one. Her story challenges the challenge, illustrates the challenges faced by Christians who marry a non-believer, and that happens a lot. Christians who think it's okay to marry a non-believer. The Bible says, "Be not equally yoked together with unbelievers." Does it not? First, Second Corinthians six fourteen, be not. Unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? The verse speaks to a couple not on the same page with the Lord and with things spiritual. It's really a beautiful thing, if you think about it, when Christ is the center of your marriage, not just the center of the ceremony. When He's part of your marriage, When he binds two people together, a Christian husband and a Christian wife pray together. They encourage each other in their faith journey. They worship together. They raise children with the same goal, and that is seeing those kids come to know Jesus Christ as their savior one day. Their mutual faith helps them through the challenges of life, love, and marriage. In life, there are no guarantees. There are no guarantees. Just because you married somebody who's a Christian, there's no guarantee, but the odds are in your favor that that person and you will stick together. 50% of Christian marriages end in divorce. What does that say about marriage? I think it says more about Christians than it does about marriage. But when Christ lives in the heart of a wife and her husband, how much stronger are those cords of love and commitment and how much more potent are those vows and the promises that they made to walk together, to cry together, to tough it out together, until death parted them. So why did Abigail marry Nabal when she and everybody knew of his reputation? It wasn't blind love, and seldom is. In 1011 BC, when this account is, is, for, is told, marriage was largely a matter of family arrangement. You heard of matchmakers. It was about matchmakers. Women had little to say about a choice of husband, and maybe, as her parents calculated just how rich Nabel was, the more attractive a prospective husband he became. They may have been thinking about the bucks. He's a good catch for our daughter. He'll be a good provider. She'll never go hungry. And maybe over time, here's the clincher, maybe over time she can change him mm-hmm. lesson number 2 abigail exercised her god-given qualities to cope with and overcome her circumstances you have them you have qualities that god's given you to help you through your circumstance he just doesn't he just doesn't throw you into the pot and say swim on your own he's given you help to do that There are 20 good qualities of Abigail listed in 1 Samuel 25. She was able to cobble these together to become a positive and formidable force in her own life and those around her in order to deal with her husband's brutish ways. I only took out seven of those qualities to share with you this morning. Verse three calls her clever and wise. There was something about her character and her personality that God had put in there to be able to assess a situation and be able to come up with something, some way to deal with it. There are ways to deal, you always have options. You may not think you do, but there are always options. There are always something that God will use to intervene in your circumstance. You need the wisdom to see it and God will give you that wisdom. Secondly, verses 2 and 6, she was humble. Even though she had married this very, very wealthy man, she was unspoiled by her riches. Look how she commanded those servants to take all of that material and bring it to David. She had the power. She had the bucks at her disposal. Verses 14 to 19, she was appreciative of anything others did for her. She hadn't come to that place in life where she said, I got it made, I don't need anybody. I've got all the money I want. I'm married to this, even though he's a brute, even though sometimes I feel like I could punch his lights out, I've still got a guy who's there. And people know of his reputation so they don't bother me too much. Nope, she wasn't doing that. Every time somebody did something for her, she appreciated it from the smallest token of appreciation, she was blessed. Here's a very important one, verses 14 to 17. She was a good listener. Why is that important? Because so many people have a burden in their heart, and they're not sharing it with anybody else, and they are looking for somebody who will listen. Just be there. Just be available to hear what's in your heart. People need somebody to go to that they can trust. People they need... People need somebody they can go to whom they know has godly wisdom to be able to discern the things that they hear and not repeat it to other people. That's a very frightening thing that if you open up your heart, if you share with people the deep issues that you never talked to anybody about, that somehow or another, it'll diminish you. And somehow or another, they're going to talk to somebody about it. Now, you don't have that trust Because she was a good listener, she could be trusted. Do you have people in your life that you trust? Do you have people in your life that you could talk to and know that they're not gonna take what you've said and broadcast it to others? Fifthly, in verse 18, she was generous with time and resources, always wanting to help others in need. I've always believed that this was a congregation built on that as one of its principles that we would help people in need. The Lord has blessed us in terms of our finances while a lot of churches are in deep financial debt. We're not, and the Lord has allowed us to be able to help folks with financial needs, and we've jumped to help. She was able to help, not just with money, but with time. I like to think that if you call your pastor, they'll pick up the phone, and he'll spend time with you over the phone, and your deacons too. Verse 25, she possessed a a godly wisdom, a spiritual discernment to recognize the kind of man she married, at the same time, in her own way, she loved him and tried to save his life. I mean, she could have been an antagonist. She could have been working to get this guy killed. She could have just gone to David and said, hey, look, it's hopeless. This guy can't be changed, I've been trying for years. He's better off dead. Eh. She didn't do any of that. She did the best she could to save him from getting killed by David. That's what she did when she brought that food. Verses 28 to 35 said she had a great faith in God. She prayed a lot. Are you a person of prayer? Are you a prayer warrior? If there was ever a time when our congregation needed prayer warriors, it's now. Because the world is closing in. The world is closing in on your family. The world is closing in on your children and grandchildren. The world is closing in. It's making its influence felt more and more. This is partially why I have such a passion to see our ministry go beyond the walls here. Not be just here. But go and reach people wherever they are. People, well, someone will say, well, but they have a church. How many non-Bible teaching churches are there? A lot. And if we could provide that platform by which the Bible can be taught to people in such a way that they will get it in their lives, that's part of our mission, to reach beyond the walls. That praying faith that she had coupled with exercising those guadly godly qualities that she possessed allowed her to talk the talk and walk the walk and at the same time allowed god to create a safety net a hedge of protection around the heart and mind of abigail when you're assaulted by somebody when somebody's always beating you down when somebody's always telling you how stupid you are or how how uh, lazy you are about all the negatives somebody looking for all your negatives what happens to you is you get wounded Some people spend years bearing those scars. But the Bible is crystal clear there's only going to be one person in heaven who has the scars of what happened to him here on earth, and that's Jesus, amen? The only one. You won't have these scars in heaven, but by the same token, that there are people here who want to help you as you go through those things. Abigail was able to redirect Nabal's anger away from those he would hurt and she gained the inner strength to endure those times when harm came her way. Today, people would label her, label her a victim, right? You're a victim. You're unable to change your circumstance. You're too brainwashed. You're too weak to stand up to this brood of a husband. You're unable to take independent action. Throw off your shackles. Why didn't she follow today's mat- mantra and just dump the jerk? Those who say that that's the case say something completely erroneous about this woman. They missed all of her qualities listed in the text. They overlooked the full implications of her actions with David. Verse 19 to 36 clearly show Abigail prayerfully, acted independently enough to intervene for her husband and with David without Nabal's consent or knowledge. She did this to help him. She did this to save him. And when she weighed those two things, I have to do something I know he's not going to like, but I have to do that thing to save his life. She decided that the scales were weighed in saving his life. And she said, regardless of what happens to me, I'm going to save him. And she did. She was bold and thorough in assessing the problem at hand. She was decisive. She didn't panic. She didn't let emotions cloud her thinking. She was brave going alone to the man who determined to kill her husband. She exercised wisdom in dealing with David. She was gracious, diplomatic. She took her husband's rudeness on herself. She said, ah, it's my fault what happened to you with your men. In the end, her self-deprecating, humble demeanor turned David's wrath wrath to mercy and leniency. When David's anger was extinguished and she was sure her extended family was safe, beauty went home to face the beast. We pick up the account in our text. Back to our text, verses, chapter 25, verses 36 to 38. I'll read them to you. So David received her hand, no, 36. Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he held a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry with him, for he was very drunk. Wherefore she told him nothing less or more until the morning light. She waited. See, there's that wisdom. There's that discernment. He's drunk now. I'm not going to tell him anything. 37. But when it came to pass in the morning, when the wine was gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became as stone. When he realized what she had done for him, it just took all the mean-spiritedness out of him. He just gave up. It came to pass about 10 days after that the Lord smote Nabal and that he died. The rest of the account tells us the same time after the death of Nabal, David asked Abigail to be his wife and she agreed so they were married. That kind of reads like a fairy tale, doesn't it? In fact, there are many accounts in the Bible of stories that have later become fairy tales, used like Beauty and the Beast. Probably comes from here. It's one of the places in the Bible where there were happy endings. And that's one of the wonderful things about God's word. In the final analysis, if you read it to Revelation, there's a happy ending for those who believe. See, God's the author of happy endings. You don't know how your life's gonna turn out, but God's desire that you have a happy ending. Not every life story has a happy ending. Life's highway seldom follows a straight line. It twists, it turns, guaranteeing one thing. There will be surprises at almost every bend in your road. Some surprises are happy and sadly, some are tearful. Some seem overwhelming and just too hard to bear. They challenge the very core of who you are. And here's lesson number three Abigail models that with every challenge, with God's help, the believer has choices. You can throw in the towel, you can follow the crowd, you can accept being a victim which is where the world wants you to be. Or utilize those qualities God has given all of us to persevere, to keep on keeping on, to come to become victors and not victims. Your circumstance may be big, but your God is bigger. Your trials may be big, but you have the greatest lawyer in heaven. He's advocating for you. Sometimes the road Does get rough, potholed, and uncomfortable. But Abigail's story encourages us to hang in and hang on because one day we will see on the horizon that Christ has made a way where there seems to be no way. In time, he can turn ashes into stars. And if we let him, he can tame the heart of a beast and make it beautiful. So there are things in your life that are ugly right now and might want to control you. May want to hold you in their grasp and in their grip. And if that's the case, I want to encourage you this morning that God to take even a situation like you're going through and make it beautiful. He may not get you out of this circumstance, but he's promised to go with you through this circumstance. He's promised to hold your hand, to hold you up, to keep you from drowning. He's promised not to leave you during this time. He's not to, promised not to abandon you. He's promised to be there to help you through. You're not going to go through this like those who don't believe. You're going to go through this, but you're going to go through this with Christ's help. And I promise you, based on the book and based on experience, that that help will be sufficient for you in the day that you need it the most. Amen? Trust him. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you can turn our nightmares into beautiful dreams, and that we, if we're living through a nightmare right now, Lord, that you can be present in our life, ever present, more present than our problem, more present than our, sub, our, our, our circumstance, more present than our trouble. And we pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit to those who need you the most right now. For those who are hurting, those who are angry, those who are grieving, those who are sad, those who are lonely, and those who are lost, be God to those folks right now. Is anybody here in the congregation with your eyes closed? Today you just need a special touch from the Lord. You just feel the need of his presence. I'm going to ask you, I'd like to pray for you, but would you raise your hand? Pastor, would you pray for me this morning? I'm in need of a special touch from the Lord today. Would you raise your hand? I see a few hands going up now. I'll give you another moment. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, Father God, this morning, there are those who need your special touch, need to feel your presence in a way that encourages them, in a way that lets them know that you're there, that they can turn to your book, the Bible, and search the promises that say that you're there. And we, we live by faith, Lord. And therefore, we know that you wouldn't abandon us in the middle of a mess, but you'd be there for us. So be with all who need your, your healing touch, all who need to sense your presence, and all who walk by faith this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much.